Father, we do thank you for this time together, the time that we can set aside to meet and study your word and to glory in the beauty of Christ and what you've shown us in your word of him and the work that he is doing in the world through us. How he's graciously brought us into this great transformation of creation that he is redeemed by his death, burial, and resurrection. Would you help us this morning as we study this next section in Acts to have a big picture view of your plan, even though we concentrate so many times on our individual lives and our individual circumstances, there's an overall structure to this thing that we miss so often. I pray that we uh, pan back a little bit and watch Paul in action on Mars Hill and be encouraged and challenged to be bold with presenting reality that the God who is is calling mankind to repent and believe the gospel. Would you help us with that this morning in Christ's name? Amen. All right, we are in Acts 17, continuing through. We're starting at verse 22. And we begin today on 10 verses that have received probably more scholarly attention than any other passage in the New Testament. Um, the smart guys seem to be a little obsessed with this sermon from two standpoints. One, some people really focus on Paul's use of Greek philosophy in, in this sermon. They say he's taking it from a philosophical standpoint. He's just trying to make the, the, the argument that, you know, that God is knowable. Kind of a real hands-off, kind of back, big picture kind of thing. And he does it through Greek philosophy. And, and that's certainly one opinion. The other is, no, he's taking a very biblical worldview. He's using the Old Testament to people who have no familiarity with the Old Testament. And he's doing it, he's using bridge connections to, to get them into the worldview. And the reason that that's important is because if you take the, the standpoint of the philosophical model, then you have, you're going to view his sermon a certain way. In fact, the conclusion of it, going to the resurrection, is it seems like an afterthought. It really doesn't fit the rest of the mindset. But if you take the standpoint that it's an Old Testament worldview that he's presenting to them, well, the resurrection makes absolute sense because that's all the law and the prophets speak of me. So what we're seeing here is kind of a, a question. Is Paul merely arguing that the knowledge of God can be perceived through nature? Or is Paul arguing the superiority of the biblical worldview that's rooted in the Old Testament? Is he using the Greek language kind of as a, as a bridge for Athenian intellectuals? In other words, is Paul being an evidentialist or a presuppositionalist? Right? So if we're talking about those terms, those are big words. Some people are not familiar with that. Evidentialists kind of take the standpoint of everybody, we, we just try to reason from what the stuff is to a knowledge of God. Presuppositionalists say no. Everybody knows that God exists. Romans 1 tells us that everybody knows that God exists. And we call to that knowledge that people willingly suppress to that. So we're going to go through the text today. Here's my plan over the next three weeks. We're going to go through this text today. 
just what, what does the scripture say? What does it mean? What are we, what are we trying to glean from it? Then we're going to talk next week on the differences between evidentialism and presuppositionalism. I think those are healthy ways to, to kind of view the, the debate on how we present the gospel to people. What, what standard, by what, from what focal point are we, are we pursuing that? Because it has, ideas have consequences. And so I, I'd like for us to kind of go through that. The third week, what I'd like to do, Lord willing, the creek don't rise, is to kind of go through a practical, um, how do we do this? Just kind of a, go through some scenarios or whatever and, and, and uh, some resources I'm pulling from I highly recommend uh, that you get them on the tactical part of it is a, is a book oddly enough called Tactics by Greg Kokel it's a great book um, another one is called Questioning Evangelism and it's written by a guy who's not reformed but it's a great book I'll give him that you know uh, but he, he has some great uh, insight into Questions. How do you how do you get into it from any uh, facet of life? How do you get into the gospel? It's just a really good um, a good resource on that. So that's kind of where I'm I'm planning on going. Is he reasoning back to this? Is he reasoning from the book of nature using their worldview, or from scripture using his? And that's really the big difference between evidentialism and presuppositionalism. So I'm going to go ahead and tip my hand. Has there's any question? I think he is absolutely arguing from the Old Testament. It's a big surprise. I think he's absolutely arguing from the Old Testament. Uh, he is he is using the language of the Greek philosophers to create those connections and to work through. The, here's why, you know, uh, some 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 language to use to to get them into the biblical worldview. But his main theme is. God is creator and the proper worship of this creator God. In fact, the very speech that we're, gonna, we're about to read is Hebrew structure. It's a chiastic structure. A, B, C, B, A. Remember those kind of patterns that you studied in high school English? Couplets, A, A, B, B, C, C. Sonnets, the Shakespearean sonnets were what? What were they? Was it A, B, B, A? C or, or C D D C whatever anyway I I forget all that stuff anyway so haiku is just weird um, but they, you, you remember the the structures that those things would have and everybody had to take the test they study real hard for the test and they forget about what the structure is of those things but that's kind of what's going on here Paul is using a very Hebrew chiastic structure incidentally. I read recently uh, some writings of a guy who thinks that 1 Corinthians, the whole letter, is chiastic Hebrew structure, which is incredibly important in interpreting it. Because what is the thing we learned about chiastic structure in the Old Testament when we were in? The middle's the most important. The middle's the most important. So if you're reading something that you know is a chiasm, the, the, it's all building up and releasing the middle thing. And he does that here, which makes it very interesting in 1 Corinthians. But we may get to that in the future. I don't know. Years, Years from now. Seven. Decades, Seven. maybe. You know, I don't know. So here, uh, Luke, Luke, yeah. <laughs> the, the Sylvania old farts. Um, all right, so here Luke gives 
five bullet points of Paul's presentation. I'm pretty sure that this is not the full sermon. And, and as we've seen in, Luke, in, in Acts before, Luke gives a summary of it, the bullet points of it, uh, that, that he distills down for the purpose of efficiency. But anyway, here it is. Let's look at it. Verse 22. So Paul, first of all, how did he get here? Let's just re- rehash real quick by way of review. How did he get here? He got chased out of places and ended up... He got chased out of places. What's typical? Uh, he gets chased out of places. He gets in Athens. He's waiting on Timothy and Silas. And he's doing what in the meantime? Preaching. He's vacation. He's having vacation. He's seeing the sights. He's checking out the temples because that's, you know, those... Parthenon is beautiful this time of year. And he gets real angry. He gets angry. But I thought he was troubled in his heart. Wasn't he troubled in his heart? The language in the text says he was apoplectic, right? Now, the Greek word that's used there is the same word that we get apoplectic from. That means you get twitching your right eye and can barely start foaming. Um, that's the language that he's using. And so Paul is provoked in his spirit, the ESV says. And he, and he starts talking with um, those, of course, in the synagogue, which he always starts there. And then during the rest of the week, he's talking with the Greeks in the marketplace, which we talked about as being the central cultural area that they they lived, and they had ideas, and they'd get up on a podium, and they'd start talking, and yay, yay, yay. So he's talking. They're disturbed. What is this new thing that you're saying? And they drag him before what we think is a council uh, that monitors and, and regulates, apparently, free speech, um, that he had violated their safe space. And so they brought him to this council for a uh, discussion on what he's talking about. We want to hear more about it. We want to know what you're saying. So here he is. And the council was a 30-member panel called the Areopagus. I always mess that up. Mars Hill. All right. There he is. So verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. End quote. Now, how does Luke set the scene? What is Paul doing? What what are the words that he uses to set the scene? 
before he begins talking in verse 22. Standing in their midst. What is that visually? Standing in their midst, what does that visually have an implication of? Like they're surrounded him. It's one against the masses. Yeah, he's, he's in the Wizengamit or whatever that was from Harry Potter. He's in the middle there, standing in the middle, and it's, they're all listening. This is a teacher teaching the intellectuals of Athens. He's in center stage. And this is Paul, right? I mean, this is he, everywhere he goes, he ends up in the court of somebody, in the middle of something, with the high leaders. Somehow, this is what God has called him to do. How does he begin his address to them? What does he say? In every way, they're very religious. Now, is that a compliment? Yeah, to them it is. Yeah, to them it is. Sure. And it depends on the context, right? He's piquing their interest and he's saying, hey, I noticed you, you were seeking after all of this knowledge and there's this unknown God. And he, he tries to direct them, this is the right way to do it. Right. So he's, he's setting them up, basically. Yeah. I perceive that in every way you're religious. Now, if you're an Athenian, <clears throat> the Stoics and the Epicureans are very prideful, religious, pious guys. The knowledge of the divine is within us. We reason outward to what is true. All, is, all of life, the Epicureans, all of life is matter. The only thing we can do is to live calm lives, seeking wisdom, seeking knowledge. I perceive that in every way you're religious. If you're an Athenian, you hear that, oh, he's complimenting our piety. What do you know is going on? Where's Paul coming from? He's already apoplectic about their idol worship. Yeah. To him, you're very religious means you're superstitious. Yeah. Right? You do a lot. You're, you're, you do, a, like the Pharisees did a lot of like showing, yeah. like you're very religious in your actions. They're seeking to attain to knowledge. They're seeking to better themselves and through their own actions and efforts. Yeah. You're very religious. You're very pious. You're very, you work a lot to be good at what your worldview dictates you should be doing. You're very religious. Fine people, but, yeah, but you're, you're wrong. But you're wrong. But you're wrong. <laughs> well, we'll get to that in a minute. You're very religious. It's an ambiguous term. Yeah. Right? And he's piquing their interest through an ambiguous term. They pour their meaning into it. He has his. It's a standard Greek introduction, by the way, to do this in, in rhetoric. They, they did this often. Um, and there's probably some merit to it. I mean, he doesn't want to go in there ticking them off. You guys are wrong. He didn't do that. He's, he's, he's drawing them in. It makes sense to start with what he's observed. Start with the, start with the carrot. With what I was, and, and it's a bridge thing. He's starting with what he's observed about their culture. I'm familiar with your culture. In fact, he gets a little bit more in that. But there's, it could be positive. It could be negative, depending on the context. For the Athenians, they take it as a compliment. But Paul was still fuming over the idols of the city. Good morning. By the end of the speech, though, he leaves no doubt what he thinks about their religion, right? I mean, all right. Look at verse 23. What is he doing here with the audience? What is he doing? He's using their own logic against them. In what way? He's using their own logic against them. What way? They have an altar. They have all these different gods, and one is to the unknown. To the unknown god. They, they have all this other stuff that they've committed to, these gold, this silver, this whatever, 
they've committed to these sculptures as these are these are what we worship through and yet there's an unknown one now for well let me see why would there be an altar to an unknown God he's familiar with their culture we've established that why would there be an altar to an unknown God what would the reasoning be behind that in case we missed one in case we forgot one in case we missed one their mindset was they want to know everything. They want the newest scuttlebutt. So, oh, if we didn't miss something, you know, if we miss something, let's cover our bases. Scuttlebutts aside, um, yes, it is. What if we missed one? For, for a culture that prizes wisdom and knowledge, what does that say? They know they're missing something. They know they don't know everything. Yeah. They know there's uncertainty. And yet, isn't that the cardinal sin of the Stoics? To not know. To be ignorant about something. That's a brilliant direction to go. Sure it is. Here's, here's an unknown. Here's, here's what I know. And not only that, you've built an altar to your ignorance. Yeah. Right? It, it's, you, it's also go, a way for Paul to draw them in more because he's saying, you have this unknown. You want to know what all, you want to know everything. Let me, let me enlighten you. Ah, nice. Yeah. He's drawing them in. You want a new thing? You, you've, you've got an altar here to something you don't know. Let me help you out. Um, being very religious had led them to set up an altar out of fear that they might offend some deity they are unaware of and had failed to give proper worship. And that's exactly where Paul goes. Creator God, worship of the Creator God. Yes? I would also, I think it's Paul like went to the altars and like really became knowledgeable in their religious acts. Um, I think sometimes when we're trying to share the gospel, we're just like, "Oh, well, this is this is right because this is what I know," and not really ever knowing about mm -hmm. or even trying to ask about or getting any knowledge of what they believe, which is like the core of their being. Mm -hmm. So I think it's cool that he really like went in there and spent a lot of time studying and getting really well versed so he could know how yeah. it was presented. Yeah, there's kind of a debate about that now, isn't there, about how much interaction we should have with unbelieving cultures. Right, yeah, I'm, I'm wondering um, how long he was there, just observing. Yeah, um, it seems to be several before, several weeks. Yeah, before he even started yeah. talking because, um, yeah, I've, I've noticed that <clears throat> When I'm most uh, effective sharing the gospel, uh, I have to really listen for a while. Yeah. yeah. To to just kind of think through. Okay, what? If, how is this? How am I going to say this? Mm -hmm. To so that they don't think that I'm being judgmental towards them, and like, you know, it's not that I'm trying to be judgmental. It's just the logic falls short. Mm -hmm. Your logic falls completely short. Right. And uh, but you want to listen so that they actually feel heard. Yeah. Least. Because they've uh, a lot of unbelievers have like they've, they've, they've had so many people preaching at them, mm -hmm. you know, trying to force them into believing what they what they believe that they're just you know, they have they're so turned off to it. Mm. So turned off to Christianity because of people, because of men that are very abrasive with it. Mm. And um, so, I, I, when I heard, when I read this part of it, one of the things that I 
I remembered was many moons ago when we were in the Old Testament, I, I remember that we talked about um, the prayer to the unknown God, the Sumerian prayer to the unknown God. It's a tablet that was found mid, uh, that dates back to the mid-7th century B.C. And it was an original prayer from the Sumer, which is a, a Middle Eastern land. Um, and the, it, it starts off like this. May the wrath of the heart of my God be pacified. May the God who is unknown to me be pacified. May the goddess who is unknown to me be pacified. May the known and unknown God be pacified. May the known and unknown goddess be pacified. The sin which I have committed, I know not. The misdeed which I have committed, I know not. And it goes on and on and on and on. That was a very ancient prayer, a very ancient plea to an unknown god or goddess by this poet in Sumer. And here we are in the middle of Athens, the height of Western culture, philosophy, art, thinking, everything intellectual here in Athens, and they're still crying the same prayer to the unknown God. Um, Calvin says here that the Athenians setting up an altar to an unknown God was a token that they weren't certain about anything. You can't land anywhere. You never, I mean, there's just, I don't know what's out there. Uh, what if they're wrong and there's this unknown deity that they're totally offending, which they are? Paul's about to tell them about who they're offending. And in fact, he's the only one that exists. Uh, we get to the second half of verse 23, and Paul sets the tone for the entire rest of the speech. Um, their worshiping of an unknown God trumpets that they are ignorant. If he's unknown to you, you're totally ignorant of his true nature. What, how does Paul characterize the object of their worship? What is the language that he uses? What is the language he uses? Well, he says that that God doesn't need to be served by human hands. He doesn't need anything from us. That's right. In verse 23, at the end of it, though, what, how does he characterize what they worship? The, the noun that he uses, what? Okay. He said, what, what, okay, he asked a question. Well, he, said, he makes a statement. Let me just go this way. He makes a statement. I am. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Why does he say what and not who? Because, because it's, not, it's not real. They're worshiping things. They're worshiping things. Claiming that they're persons, they're worshiping things. So already you have within his language this indictment against their idolatry. I can't believe it. Yeah. So you have this, um, this immediate indictment. Um, the, their worship was of a thing, not a person. And, and second, what else is he pointing out? He's pointing out that they can't even be consistent with their own worldview. You're worshiping the unknown God out of fear and uncertainty, and yet your whole cardinal virtue is knowledge. You never can get there. You'll never attain it. 
You acknowledge, you build an altar to the fact that you'll never attain it. He's stepping into their worldview and driving it into a tree. This is, this is what he, he's showing. It's not workable. What you're doing is not workable. And that's true with any worldview other than biblical Christianity. There's two worldviews. They all boil down to the same thing. One is human attainment or achievement. The other is divine accomplishment. Either we're striving to get approval to a God that we sort of know, maybe know, don't know, or God reaches down and achieves for us what we can't for ourselves. There's only two worldviews. So regardless of the trappings of it, it's all the same. Whatever worldview you're looking at, Mormonism, Islam, Buddhism, they're all toward human achievement. Biblical Christianity is, I can do nothing for myself. Nothing in myself I bring solely to your cross I cling. I cling to something you've done for me. And he's pointing that out. Even in your enlightened worldview, I'm so full of knowledge. I'm, I'm, this is the, you have an altar to where you're deficient. You celebrate. And isn't that's so not like today. I mean, have you ever heard the phrase from somebody, I'm just, I'm uncomfortable with the uncertainty. I, I'm, I'm comfortable with the uncertainty. I'm good with that. No, you're not. You're scared to death with the uncertainty. All right. They had an altar of their ignorance. Look at verse 24. Here is the core principle of Paul's argument to them. God is creator. What was their understanding of divinity? Do you remember from last week? What was their understanding of divinity? We had the polytheistic. Many gods. And in fact, there was, to the Stoics, God for every sense or virtue. Sure. There was God for every kind of thing. For the, for the Stoics, too, there was a spark of the divine in every person. And you reason from the spark of the divine out to reality. Sounds like 1 Corinthians, doesn't it? You reason from the spark of the divine out to the reality. For the Epicureans, there's no such thing as divinity. Nothing really matters. Anyone can see. I mean, it's all matter. I see a little man. I, there, nothing, it's all matter, right? And, and when we die, it's done. There is no divine. So he's, that's their understanding of divinity. Where is the divine? The divine is in the heavens. It's in nature. It's in humanity. What is Paul presenting? What is Paul presenting? Verse 24. Where is God? He's outside. He made everything. He's creator God. He's not part of nature. He's above nature. There is a creator-creature distinction. And every false worldview, you see a blurring, a misunderstanding of that distinction. He's either the God of Islam, who's so unknowable, we never can, you know, we have altars of uncertainty to, you know, to Allah or whatever. You have so unknowable, or he's imminent in everything. We're all part of Shirley MacLaine's divine God. You know, it's all, it's all the same thing. There's either a pantheistic idea or completely unknowable deity. So Paul is making a hard distinction between creator and creature and he's saying that 
there is a single supreme being who stands over the world, who created all things, and he's unknown to them. If God is creator, what two things follow? Paul goes there. What two things follow? If he's above the world, where is he residing? Not in temples made by human hands, right? Why is that, Paul says? He doesn't need us. He's self-sufficient. <laughs> Interestingly enough, the Stoics agree with Paul on this. And the Epicureans too. Plato used to rail against the idea that men worship things on earth instead of the heavenly bodies. Things that are above us. The Stoics and the, uh, and the Epicureans would ridicule the idolatry or idol worship. The, the, the reason is within. You know, we gotta... So they think of that as crass. So they're agreeing with this, sort of, from their point of view. He's not served by human hands. And Paul's kind of pulling from the Old Testament. Remember Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple? But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I've built. Do you remember, too, Stephen's speech to the Jews in Acts, or earlier in Acts? What did he say? God didn't need this temple. Isn't it ironic that Paul is making the argument that Stephen made to the Jews when he presided over Stephen's death? <laughs> and he's making it to Gentiles. So they would totally, the philosophers have totally agreed with, with Paul's statements here as they, as they stood. Uh, they believed that the divine was self-sufficient, that divinity uh, is the giver of life and breath and everything. But there's a great difference between their pantheism and his monotheism. Huge difference in there. Paul is rooting his argument in the Old Testament. It's not the philosophical concept of d divine eminence, the, the, the God in everything that pervades all nature and mankind. Paul's pulling from passages like Isaiah, thus says the Lord, uh, says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. And he's also pulling from Psalm 50, verse 10, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry... I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble. Let me provide for you. You don't provide for me. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. You glorify God by calling on Him to provide for us. We don't glorify God by meeting His needs. He doesn't need us. I'll find it. Yes, I'm sure it does, somewhere. <laughs> so Paul is arguing from the premise that a sovereign creator stands above his creation. What does that mean? We're subject to him. We're subject to him. We're responsible to this creator God. <clears throat> Why? Why would they be responsible to God? Paul tells them in verse 26. What does he say? He made them. He made them how? One man, from one man, every nation. From one man, every nation. Here's the historical Adam. One man, every nation. What does that mean to Greeks? What is Paul claiming there? Who 
is subject to this God? Everybody. God is not the Paul that, the, the God that Paul is preaching. The Paul that God is preaching. The, Paul, the God that Paul is preaching. I make it right. Um, is not some Jewish cult God. He is the God of heaven and earth. He's the God of all mankind, and all men are subject to Him. The universality of mankind's relationship to God is at issue here. And although there are many nations scattered all over the world, they are one in their common ancestry and in relationship to their Creator. Why did God make humanity? What does Paul tell them? Why did He make humanity? What does He say? Okay, that's two. Second thing. What's the first thing? To live on the earth. To live on the earth. What does that say about Creator God? <clears throat> he made them to live in His earth. He created them to enjoy the bounty of His creation. How they repaid Him. <laughs> he made them also to seek Him. Every man, every that's gender neutral man, every man, is responsible to seek God, to seek the true God, not just a God. I'm really sincere about my religion. Well, your religion is sincerely wrong. Why would you do that? Every man is responsible to seek the true God. And his creation calls for them to do so. God's providence in creation has made him known in some sense and to that extent made them responsible to seek him. The Stoics would agree with this. Uh, their, their big deal was, we're given the spark of the divine, the reason that we have inside of us. We're compelled to seek after more knowledge. That's what Paul's talking about, right? <laughs> this is their worldview. It's more knowledge. The divine nature was to be found in all, all of nature. One should strive to understand it as fully as possible through cultivating reason. Paul would not agree with that interpretation of what he's saying. Even knowledge from nature would still be human attainment. Right? Even if I get to know a lot of science stuff, that's still human attainment. Paul has a very low <clears throat> view of human ability to get to God. What does he call it? What is the language he uses? Such, such that they would what? That they may grope for him like blind men in the dark. And what's even more hilarious about that statement is that he then goes on to say, he's right next to you and you're still groping. He's not hidden himself. This isn't a hide and seek with God. He's right there. And you're so blind, you, you're groping. You may find pieces. You may find some truth, but you're borrowing truth from God to make your own idolatrous religion. There's no question about God's providence. The question is about the ability of men to make a proper response. There's no question about God's purpose. He created mankind to seek Him. That's the responsibility of all humanity. We're called to worship God. And so where does he go in verse 28? 
Here he transitions to his critique of the idolatrous worship. What does he use as his text, by the way, here in verse 28? What does it say? In him we live and move and have our being. That's a song. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. What is he using as his text? He's using their stuff as his text. This is their scripture. They believe that their poets were inspired. He's pointing to their stuff. And yet he's showing the deficiency of their own worldview using their stuff. If God is so eminent, and, and, and your own poets recognize this, why do you have an altar to an unknown God? Why, what's wrong with the picture? You're blind, right? That's what he's saying. You're, you're ignorant. He takes their own scripture and turns their worldview on its head. Men are made in the image of God. No human art or imagination can render proper homage to God. If humanity is like God, then God is not gold or silver or any material representation. Only the creature can express true worship to God, not a creation of the creature. If the Stoics agreed with Paul's premise here, they would have immediately been convicted of the idolatry in their own heart. They may not be using... They may have critiqued or been uh, offended by some of the use of the idols in Athens. But they've made an idolatry of their own reason. <clears throat> I'm glad that we don't have that problem today. I mean, really, isn't that the common argument? Well, if you just reason. What, you know, Christianity is such a fantastical ridiculous mythology I don't you know I'm not I'm not worshiping the giant spaghetti monster in the sky stuff it's such a superstitious thing I use reason well that's your ultimate authority based on what how do you know you're reasoning rightly what by what standard are you reasoning because I'm God there's reason from within because I'm God that's exactly right it's idolatry of the self is ultimately what it comes down to all right, so where does Paul take them in verse 30? This is where he wins friends right here. The times of ignorance, your cardinal sin, Stoics, the times of ignorance, God overlooked. He's been patient with you. But now he commands all... Is this an invitation, by the way? Sure. Take one step, God will take nine. This is an invitation. This is not an invitation. God, the sovereign Lord of the universe, King of heaven and earth, commands all men everywhere to repent. This is not a, 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 a light organ in the background, let's throw petals on the ground while you walk to the altar kind of thing. He commands it. This is a king commanding, repent. Repentance for a Greek. You think they'd be familiar with that? That's a foreign concept. You want to get to a new thing? Here it is. Repent. They don't know or worship the one true God. God's forbearance ends because now they know the one true God through Paul's proclamation. He's made them aware. He's given them knowledge. He's not unknown anymore. But their, spirit, their spiritual pride there, all their piety, however, is in vain. Paul comes back to their own sin of ignorance. So if they're going to continue in their own self-worship, it's not going to be 
through ignorance, but willful suppression and rebellion against the Creator. So the, recall, the call is to repent. So repent's a strange term. Even more strange to a Greek is the Day of Judgment. You don't hear about Days of Judgment with Zeus. He wants women and wine, so I don't know. You don't hear about that. Paul talks judgment. And what's the proof of the judgment coming? What does he offer as proof? Here's his evidence. What does he say? The resurrection, the raising of the man he has appointed to judge you and everyone. He raised him from the dead. He goes to the resurrection. Now that's something that they're just going to freak out over. Why would they freak out over that? Paul talking about resurrection is different than what they're talking about. Right? When they die, if you're Epicurean, it's your dust. Dust in the wind. Dude. If you are stoic and you die, your body is gone, but the divine, the spark of the divine returns to the great one and all this kind of stuff. Bodily resurrection, even a glorified body resurrection, completely foreign. And it's here where he has to stop, right? Because they start scoffing. What? There's no bodily resurrection. But Paul goes there. He gives that as proof of you're going to be judged. And here's how God shows that he's going to do it through the man he's appointed by raising him from the dead. <clears throat> Incidentally, isn't that what Peter did with the Jews on the day of Pentecost? You're all going to be judged by the man you just crucified because now he's alive. Right? Paul is doing the same thing here with Greeks. It's the same message. God is creator, and he's appointed a time for judgment for our actions, and he's appointed a man, Christ Jesus, the Messiah, as judge. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, Jesus said. And the proof of that is that he raised him from the dead. So there it is. That's his sermon. That's his appeal. That's his great Mars Hill exposition of why they should become Christians. What's the response? What's the response? Some believed. Some believed. Mocked. Some mocked. Some wanted to hear more. <laughs> the parable of the soils. That's right. What? Do we take from this? Was this a successful venture for Paul? Yes. How? How? It names two people. That's two people. And a few people more. Two people. That's more than what was before. He didn't get arrested this time. He didn't get arrested this time. Also a standard for success. Um, yeah, I mean, there are a couple who believe... There are a couple who want to hear more, a few who want to hear more, but a vast majority are scoffing. It's one of the reasons people say that he probably just left. And those who believed, one of them was part of the council. So one out of 30 ain't bad. But what's the more important thing? That he presented it. He preached it faithfully. And he found a way to do it where he's connecting with their culture, with their worldview, but never compromising on the core issue. God is creator. He's sovereign. 
You are creatures. We are responsible to Him. Where's the gospel in here, by the way? I never hear once Paul say Jesus died for your sins. He was just explaining who God is. He's hitting them where they are. Mm -hmm. There's an old Puritan statement that says, Law to the proud, grace to the humble. Who's Paul dealing with? The proud. And to the Greeks, the idea of a crucified, dying, and then bodily resurrection Savior, that's foolishness. And Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians. Some people argue after this, Paul never goes to intellectuals again. Hogwash. Have you not read the first chapter of 1 Corinthians? It's all a refutation of this kind of stuff right here. Romans 1, a refutation of this stuff right here. The gospel is for intellectuals. It's not just for you know, us bumpkins out here in the middle of Tyler. It's for everybody. And he deals with that here by connecting, bridging through their worldview and showing how deficient it is. I think Paul's a presuppositionalist. I'm just going to go ahead and own it. Yeah. Who was the book of Romans written to? Was it Athens? Was it everybody? I mean, what? Yes. Rome? The letter was, was uh, delivered to Romans, but it was for the church and to everybody, um, as was the rest of the New Testament. And the Old Testament, too, for that matter. I mean, it's, it's for everybody. It was addressed to Romans. Uh, so you had Epicureans believing in matter alone, nothing survived death. Stoics believed that the spark of the divine survived death, neither had any category for the resurrected body. And then you have Paul leaving the Areopagus, oh my goodness, uh, with one out of 30. The pinnacle of the speech on Mars Hill was the resurrection. That's how it ended. But the core issue in the chiastic structure was God is king and men are responsible to him to worship him. That's the core issue. So there it is. For the Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. 1 Corinthians 1, 22 and 23. So that's our mandate. How do we do that? Well, we'll talk about it next week. Ta -ta -ta. Meanwhile, back at the ranch. Let's pray. Father, it's very humbling to think that we can't flip the switch in anybody's head. That we can't turn sinners into saints. That's not within our power. We're not the creator. But you've been so gracious to us to allow us to be a part of your redeeming of not only humanity, but all of creation. That what Christ has set in motion and accomplished through his death, burial, and resurrection, you are working through us as ambassadors of the kingdom of your dear son to call all men out of the kingdom of darkness into his marvelous light. And it takes skill and persuasiveness and um, a lot of work to do it well, knowing that it doesn't depend on us, ultimately. You've called us to be faithful as obedient servants 
to study and to show ourselves approved and to present the gospel clearly and forcefully and boldly, but with humility as well. That's our part of it. That's what you've given us to do. But we trust the work of your Holy Spirit to move on those whom you're calling to yourself, those whom you have redeemed through Christ and are, are calling into repentance and faith. God, would you make us faithful? Would you help us in growing in the grace of sharing the gospel with those who desperately need it, who think they know everything? but really know nothing. I thank you, Father, that you are working to give us a heart in which to approach it which is not arrogant. We're not saved by our knowledge either. We're saved by the finished work of Jesus. And so, as we approach these conversations with the unbelievers, would you help us to remember that but for your grace, we would be lost and blind and groping worshiping an unknown God. Thank you for this church. Thank you for your word. I pray that in the next service, Christ will be magnified and we would be encouraged and challenged to look more like him. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.